right, take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and today we're going to really jump into this first chapter as we study the book of Ecclesiastes together. And we established last week, not only are we committed to expository preaching, one of the best ways for us to really preach God's Word is to go verse by verse, section by section, through books in the Bible. And uh, this is a very timely book, and uh, I pray that um, the Holy Spirit will minister to our hearts as we unpack these first 11 verses. The title of the message today is Breath, Life Under the Sun, or we might say Breath is Life Under the Sun. Ecclesiastes 1, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the stream flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the living God. You may be seated. My family and I enjoy going to the beach. Maybe you enjoy that as well for a trip for a vacation and like most kids our kids when they were younger they would build forts and sandcastles around the in the sand in the area where we would set up our stuff for the day and as the day would pass as the day passed the water would inch closer and closer to their wonderful creations and to the area in which we would be sitting. And eventually, we would stay long enough that the tide would come in and sweep it all away. Sometimes, like right in the middle of the day, like around two or three o'clock, sometimes a strong wave would suddenly come up and, and it would crash through everything that they made, knock it all off and carry our stuff up towards the inland and then take it back out. But at the end of the day, as we left, the waves pretty much erased the fact that we had even been at the beach. That illustration leads us right into the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is in Scripture to remind us that our lives are going to be swept away from the earth. Just like those waves that come in and knock down sandcastles. Nothing will last. 
And this book is really a a wake-up call to reality. It tells you, it's kind of like the doctor who comes in and tells you that he's discovered a lump or a spot and you need further testing. Or you need to have a biopsy done. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is like the close call you have on the road that easily could have resulted in your car flipping and rolling and could have ended in disaster. And so, not only does the, the book of Ecclesiastes confront you and I and me with reality, it changes the way you live. Just like those circumstances. At least it should change the way that you live. Or at least it should challenge your view and perspective on life. As we said last week, as you look at the first verse specifically, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And The book is written for people just like you and me. People gathered in a congregation. People gathered for worship. And that's why he gives himself the title, The Preacher. Because he wants his audience to listen to the sermon that he's doing to preach. To listen to the words that he has written. Because he's written them and he's speaking them uh, as the spokesman of God himself. Because these words are divinely inspired. And what he has to say is really a spotlight on the true nature of our existence. The true reality of life in the world in which we are currently living, in which the audience to which he's writing, it's the same world that they were living in as well. And as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes and you get to the very end of the book, the sum of it all, everything that he writes, he says at the very end in chapter 12, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. But before you get to chapter 12, there's like 11 chapters that you need to go through. It's a process to get to that conclusion. And verses 1 through 11, specifically 2 through 11, these verses serve as an introduction to the whole book. I would liken it to teaching an essay, an important essay. When you teach an essay in school, you teach students to start with an introduction, and then you have the body, and then you have a conclusion. And so if the book of Ecclesiastes is a, is a wonderful essay, ch- chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is the introduction of the essay. And an introduction for the teachers in the room or the writers in the room, what do you need an introduction? An introduction, you need to state your subject, you need to have a solid thesis for everything that you're going to write. And you want the reader reading to know what it is that they're going to need to grapple with as they go through the essay. And that's exactly what he does here. This is the introduction. And he, he, he states his case. He wants us to know what it is that he's going to be taking us into and what we're going to be grappling with for the next 11 chapters. Almost 12 chapters. And so the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes 
it drives home one key truth that I want you to get today. One key truth that this introduction and its thesis will take us to, and it's this. The gain we seek under the sun does not exist because everything is breath. And you're thinking, okay, you wrote that like it's poetic. Can you just state it clearly? I think the way to state it just clearly, the gain we seek under the sun does not exist because everything is breath. I, I think to state it even more simplistically, the, the meaning in life that we're seeking in this world doesn't actually exist because nothing lasts. Or, or maybe what I'm saying, well, maybe another way to say it is the meaning in life that we're seeking from the world that we're living in. It doesn't exist because nothing ultimately will last. And so, so that really is the, the, the key truth of these 11 verses. And, and this key truth unfolds to us like an introduction, as I said. It, it, it contains three simple things. There's a thesis to pin. There's a question to process. And then there's a poem to ponder. And those are the three things that I want us to consider. I want to consider the thesis that we need to kind of pin to our, our minds and to our hearts. And then I want us to, 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 to process the question that he presents, which is kind of like the hook in the introduction. It's the question that, that suddenly makes you realize, okay, this is important. This relates to my life. This really matters. And then he's going to give us a poem because it's wisdom literature. So let's look at how the gain we seek under the sun does not exist because everything is breath. Let's, let's look at that key truth by first getting to the thesis. Let's consider first a thesis to pen, like on Pinterest or like on your bulletin board. It's given to us in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities... All is vanity. And so I, I brought this up last week, and I told you last week we would begin this week in the same manner. The word vanity, the Hebrew word for vanity is havel. Havel. And we need to really zero in on the meaning of this word vanity, or this word havel. And to do so, let's consider first what it's not, and then let's consider what it actually does mean. What does it not mean? Well, it does not mean vanity like a piece of furniture that is in your house. Perhaps if you have a teenage daughter in your daughter's room, and she sits in front of that and she gets herself ready. That's, that's not what this is referring to. It's not a piece of furniture. It, it, it's, it's not, it does, really it doesn't mean vanity like pride or arrogance or, or like vanity smurf for you 80s people. Like, you know, you think of this blue smurf running around with a, with a, a mirror and he's just constantly looking in it and we say, oh, look at vanity smurf, how vain. Right? That, that's not what this means. That's not what the word vanity actually means here. Perhaps most importantly, because this is how it often gets translated into the English, it actually doesn't mean meaninglessness. What he's, he's not saying that everything is meaningless. Because think about it. If that's what he's saying, well then you should just close the book and go walk out, go down to, you know, go to the, go on for your, through your day, go, go to your restaurant and start eating lunch. 
That's, that, that, he doesn't mean that. that. That's not what this word means. It doesn't mean meaninglessness, because if that's what it meant, then what he writes is meaningless. This isn't a who cares. There's no meaning to anything like the classic rock song, Bohemian Rhapsody, nothing really matters to me. That's not, that's, that is not what Solomon is saying. So what does it mean? What does the word mean? Well, we said this last week. In fact, I had, I had Josh Long come up to illustrate. I won't have them do that today, but, um, I had Josh come up last week to illustrate. And so Josh came up and we blew, we lit the candle here. And as we lit the candle, I blew it out. And I told him that he was to grab the smoke. Remember? Because the word havel in the Hebrew, write this down, it means vapor. It means mist. It actually means breath. It means breath. Josh, do you still have the smoke that you grabbed from last week? No, you don't have it? The smoke literally meaning the smoke that came up here. Don't take that metaphorically and misunderstand what I'm saying. <laughs> right? So, so here's the, here's the illustration again. Let, let's just do it one more time because I think the visual helps us. Right? What is the author saying? So we've lit the candle. This wonderful teakwood mahogany intense candle, by the way. Whoa, man. All right. So everybody sees the smoke, right? So if I grab the smoke, notice how the smoke moves as it's disappearing. It's almost gone. I can't seem to control it, can I? I can't seem to grab it. It's gone. And what I grabbed is not there either. So so do you see what this is getting at? Breath. Mist. That's the illustration. He's saying that everything is breath. Merest of breath. All is breath. That's what he's saying. And so there's two things that you should note. And I put them again on the screen. Because again, this is the thesis of the whole essay. Or the whole book. Two things or two connotations of this. One, life passes us Life passes by quickly, is how that should read. That's the first thing. Or life passes quickly. Life passes quickly. Your life is like that smoke. It was here, and now it's gone. Pastor Dan and I have been been exchanging the lyrics to Casting Crown song, right? Vapor in the wind. A flower quickly fading, if you've heard that song. It's so true. I mean, this really captures it. And, and so, and so your, your life is like that smoke, like a vapor. It's here, it's gone. When you blow out a candle, the smoke is there, but it disappears quickly. When you walk outside in the freezing cold on a very cold day, you can see your breath, but you only can see it for a moment, and then it's gone. That's your life. That's my life. This is not just unique to Ecclesiastes. This is not unique just to the Old Testament. It's Old Testament, New Testament. Look at two other verses real quickly. I did not put this on the screen last week, but it's Psalm 39, verse 5 and 6. Listen to what the psalmist writes. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. Listen to that. A few handbreadths. There's a handbreadth. 
You've made my days on earth this. This is my life. Just a few of these. And then it's gone. You go to a graveside and you go to a graveyard. You walk up to a tombstone. You have one date on one side. That's the date of birth. And then you have another date on the other side. And in between that is what? Just a dash. Just a handbreadth. That dash. That dash represents the life of the individual. All the memories, all of the, all of the fun, all of the pleasures, all of the accomplishments, all of the achievements, all of that represented by just a dash. And then he goes on to say, in my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere, listen to this, breath. The Hebrew word, havel, silah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, listen to that, like a phantom. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And then Psalm 144 says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a what? Breath, a vow. His days are like a passing shadow. So listen, what, what the, what Solomon is doing, what the preacher is doing is he wants to, he wants us to, to grasp this. He wants us to grapple with this. He wants to impress this into our soul. The mist-like nature of life. And you know what? That's actually, we project that constantly, don't we? You open your Facebook or your social media and what pops up first besides birthdays? Memories. And you click on those memories and you look and you peer into a time that now seems like it's ages past. Am I right? You blinked and puff. Life is gone just like that. Those little kids in those pictures are now young people, young teenagers, young adults. And as a parent, you then look at those pictures and then you look at those teenagers that are standing in front of you. And what do you say, parents? You say, where did the time go? And the older you get, as you enter into the later stages of life, the elderly will often say, the older you get, the more time flies, passes, goes by quickly. And so this book, the reason why we're drilling down on it again is because this book will continually repeat this theme 39 times. This word breath, this havel is used to describe life under the sun. But there's another thing that, that, that the word havel is communicating, not just that life passes quickly, be like the smoke here and gone, but life escapes our grasp. Write that down. If life is evaporating, life is elusive. You cannot grab and hold on to the smoke. You cannot contain it. You can't control it. Did you see what I did? I tried to control it, and all it did was move around as I waved my hand. And so you can't control the things in this world. Did you hear that? And you can't control your life. That's why the text says, all is breath. All is vanity. Everything is breath. Despite what we do or what we think, we're not in control. And sometimes we're reminded of this in absurd ways, aren't we? Aren't we reminded sometimes that we're not in control in really like ridiculous ways? 
Like how many of you have been to the soup, you've been to the grocery store and you, you're evaluating the line and you see the short line versus the long line. You jump in the short line and the people that were at the end of the other line get through before you do because the person in front of you had to get a manager or they're trying to find their checkbook inside their bag and can't find it or whatever it is that takes place, right? Or you're at the gas station, the same thing happens. All you need to do, especially when you're paying cash, you just need to throw the 20 down on the counter. And that's all you have to do. But the guy in front of you is buying every kind of lottery ticket that exists, including several different types of cigarettes that he's going to smoke. And you're just like, man, get out of the way. I ju- you want to throw the 20 across the counter. See... Those are illustrations that we're not really in control. But aren't there more serious examples? Right? A man downsizes his life and changes his job because he wants to be more present with his family and more faithful to church. Weeks later, he's diagnosed with terminal cancer in the very mid-stages of his life. Or a missionary family comes home on furlough and they're traveling from church to church. And while traveling to another church to present their mission and their ministry, all of them die in a tragic car accident. Recently, we attended the funeral of my son's best, my youngest son's best friend from Indiana, who just made a teenage decision to go somewhere with someone during lunch. And never came back because he died in a car accident. You, you follow what I'm saying? You know, I'll never forget when we were at the funeral and we were driving away. It was a rainy November, it was a, it was a rainy November day. And we had stayed to the very end. Everyone was gone and we were pulling out and we looked back. And as we looked back, we saw the parents, the dear parents, sitting underneath that tent. Looking at that casket. Oh my. How elusive is life. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to what is being said? Do you think you're in control? You're not. I'm not in control. We think our lives are made of stone and not sand. The preacher wants you to know this. The preacher in this text, the God of this book, wants you to know that, that life is breath. Vanity of vanities. Do you know why it's, it's written that way? Because for emphasis, right? In other words, the first, when it says vanity of, it means to the highest degree, the holy of holies. The holiest of the holies. The king of kings. The greatest of all kings. The merest of breath, of life, is breath. It's for emphasis. Most utterly, life is breath. Most completely, most simplistically, at its very base, life is the merest of breaths. So let's apply the wisdom for just a second before we now go into the question we need to process. The thesis that we pen, that the author pens for us, leads us to ask this question. Do you believe that life is short and elusive? Or are you pretending to be in control, to build a life that really is just a sandcastle sitting on a seashore waiting for a wave to wash it away? 
That's what the thesis does. But now that we have the thesis, now notice what he does in verse 3. He, he then gives us a question to process. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I mean, after all, if life is but breath, what is there to profit by all that we do under the sun? This is what he wants to process, the question he wants us to process. And so I want you to consider two things about the question. This is a question about profit, and it's a question about perspective. Gain. That's the word profit. He asks what a man gains by all his toil or work. He will explore work as an employment more thoroughly at the end of chapter 2. Here he's talking about the, he's not talking here about the 40 hour work week and this, and the good country music song that gets us to the weekend. That's not what he's talking about. He is referring to anything we do in life from writing that paper to changing those diapers to mowing the lawn. He asked what we all ask at certain times in life. What's the point of it all? Why? Why do we ask that? Because we want some profit, right? We want, we want leftovers for lunch when we get to the end of the meal. We're saving that so that we'll have more. We want a good return on our taxes. We want some kind of lasting return on life. And so what the preacher is asking is, what will we have to show for ourselves at the end of our lives? I'm just going to give it away because the implication, he implies it. You know what the answer is? It's nothing. It's nothing. Nothing that ultimately lasts. And the little that someone could point to, but wait a minute, what about my 401k? Well, wait a minute, I mean, what about my inheritance? Wait a minute, what about my retirement? Okay, the very little that we could point to is sand passing through our hand. It's nothing. Now, what you should feel is like you just got hit in the back and the wind got knocked out of you. Okay, stay with me. Don't lose, don't, don't, don't leave here yet. Hold on to this. Because we need to hit perspective. This is not just a question about profit, it's about perspective. Solomon is not asking this question like some college kid who just took philosophy 101 and he's contemplating the meaning of the universe in his basement between his video game. He's not asking this question like a hopeful influencer in a pub sipping on a craft beverage before he goes home to his mom and dad's basement. It's not how he's writing. It's not how he's asking this question. This is the preacher asking the question. And in verse 3, he just dropped the first theological flat piece to the puzzle. Did you get it? Under the sun. Under the sun. If you are looking under the sun for gain or for your toil, or for, for your toil, if you're looking under the sun for profit, you're like the singer looking for love in all the wrong places. If you still haven't found what you're looking for, you might want to ask, where am I looking? Because if you're looking simply under the sun, you're not going to find anything. Because the answer is nothing. No profit, no gain. We are under the sun. And what does that mean? We're in a fallen world. 
This is Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. He knew the books of the law. He knew the Pentateuch. He understood the first three chapters of Genesis. He's quite aware of that the Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth. And there was a time when there wasn't futility, but there was flourishing on the planet prior to the fall. He knew this. And so knowing Genesis, he knows that God is the creator and he created the world in a perfect state. And he understands that sin has brought the curse of death and futility upon the world. He knew as well that there's a promise given to Eve. And that that promise is still endured even when Solomon writes this. That a man would be born of a woman to remove the curse, to crush the head of the serpent. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 4, which I won't do that with you, but do you remember when Eve conceived? This is after the fall and they're driven out of Eden. Do you remember that she conceived and the first child she brought was Cain? And do you remember what she thought Cain, who she thought Cain would be? She thought Cain would be the Messiah, the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. Boy, was she disappointed. Because she gave birth to another child. Do you know what his name was? Abel. Do you know what his name is in the Hebrew? Havel. Breath. And so despite their expectation, there was that dark day when what did Cain do to Abel? Killed him. And there she held him. Her son Abel, Havel. Despite her expectation, she held her Havel, her Abel, as his life was cut short in the first death caused by sin. Thus, what that tells us is we need to have the right perspective. It doesn't mean she didn't continue to look for a Messiah, but it tells you that it was a reminder to her and Adam that they truly live in a different world than it was before they sinned. A world east of Eden. Ladies and gentlemen, you need the right perspective, the process, the question. Most people do not know where they are, even today. You know, maybe the reason people are addicted to antidepressants and anxiety and discontentment is at an all-time high in a world where we have access to unprecedented technologies and all sorts of medical care. And life expectancy is now increased to, to a higher, to a completely higher level than any time in human history. And yet there's more depression and more darkness. Maybe the reason is, is because people truly just don't know where they are in a fallen world. They're trying to find real meaning and hope in a world that cannot give that to them. Not only do people think that they still can find the fountain of youth in the world, our society delusionally believes that we can design our own identity, choose our own gender, create our own truth, invent our own meaning in the universe. You know what that is? It's a trip to nowhere. You know why? Because the gain we seek under the sun doesn't exist because everything is breath. Everything is cursed by sin. And all of the messaging of our current culture is the same lie that the devil spoke in the Garden of Eden when the devil told our first parents, did God actually tell you this, that you will surely die? No, you won't die. Little does he know that your eyes will be open and you'll find true meaning in the creation, not the creator. No, you're not going to find true meaning in the creation over the creator. 
So, folks, you need to have the right perspective. Solomon wants you to have the right perspective, but he's not going to let, he's not going to go easy at us, right? He's just going to keep driving this point until we finally cry out for mercy. Solomon, give us hope. But let's keep going. To apply the wisdom of the question requires us to simply ask this. What are you trying to get from life? What are you trying to get from life? Do you have a biblical perspective of life under the sun? Or are you forgetting that you are living in a world that is cursed by sin? And that you are inevitably going to die and nothing in this life is actually going to permanently last. Now that leads us to the very heart of the whole thing. The poem we have to ponder. Okay? So he's hooked us with the question. All right. Do we gain anything? And the answer is no. And he's going to now just, he's just going to drive this with another four or five verses. His answer to the question is poetically given in the poem he wants you to ponder. He wants you to ponder this. And here's how we know that there's no gain. Notice his observation. Verse four. First, the replacement of generations. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. So what does the preacher say here? A generation goes and then another generation comes. Onto the scene. There is no permanence of people. And the wording is, if your Bible actually has inverted that to say, a generation comes and a generation goes, actually, you know, it actually should read, a generation goes. Because it's emphasizing that the incoming generation just replaces the previous one. One generation dies, another one steps onto the scene. And so what does that tell you? Isn't that kind of humbling? You know, I've never taught my kids to identify themselves generationally. Like negatively or positively. Generation X, Generation Y, Baby Boomers, Millennial, right? There's good and bad in all of it. But you shouldn't identify yourself based on that. Who cares? Like, who really, who cares about what generation you're part of? Like, volumes are written about, like, here's how we reach... Hey, here's how we reach millennials or generate. I, I, I never read any of that in raising my kids. I never looked across the table and say, wow, I feel so disconnected because we're generation, we're generationally separated. It's like so, so ridiculous. Here, here's, here's what he's saying. Generations go and generations are replaced. And, and, and in knowing that, that will give you wisdom in how to live. <laughs> what marks a generation is soon replaced. Ask a young person who Joe Burrow is, and they do. Ask them who Boomer Esiason is, and they don't. My son didn't know who Boomer Esiason was last week, I was told. I've been upset about that all week, so I just got it off my chest. (laughs) Right? Maybe generations do matter. But nevertheless, one generation knows who Toby Keith is, who just passed this week. And another one doesn't really know who he is, but they know who Morgan Wallen is. You see the point? It's a truth that we have never, it, it, it is, it, this is true, that we have never heard of most people who have ever lived. Think about that. We have never heard of most people who have ever lived. Doesn't that humble us? A generation goes and is replaced, but what the preacher is saying is the people of earth remain generation after generation. No one ever breaks the cycle of replacement or changes the breath-like nature of existence. There is no lasting profit to the time and toil under the sun. No generation shows up and says, all right, we're going to change this. Nobody's going to die. 
Nobody does that. That leads us to a second observation in the text. The sun rises, the sun goes down. Look, and now he goes into the repetitions of nature. Right? So the mist-like nature of life, generation, generationally, that's not changed. Psalm 90.10 shows us that. But the repetitions of nature, what does it show us? The sun rises, the sun goes down. It, it almost feels like the, the in and out of the ocean coming on the seashore. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea. But the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. Notice in these verses, these lines, again, they sound like a trickling of a mountain stream. Like the foaming of the waves receding from the shoreline. And what he's saying is, is the sun rises and sets in a race to rise again. One author writes that when the sun goes down, we never, we have every expectation of seeing it again, but it does not necessarily expect to see us again. The wind blows to the south and goes around in circles, so do we. All the waters flow to the sea and the sea is never full. We run through life and we never seem to be finished. There's always something else to do. You see, that's what he's getting at. The, the, there's a repetition. There's a monotony. Again, there's this, this, this mist-like nature to existence. So what does nature teach? Verse 80 tells you. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The wearisome lesson is simple. In verse 8, creation is hard at work, and there's no gain or profit. The, the sea is never full. Right? The wind is never done blowing. The sun has never finished setting. It goes through the same cycle over and over again. This is not like circle of life kind of stuff, like Lion King, even though it feels that way. But what it is showing is there's some cyclical nature in existence whereby we born, we live, we die. And that's what he's driving at. And so creation is hard at work and there's no gain or profit. Why should we expect the same about our existence as creatures living in creation? No. And notice what he says. He says, man, he, he, he says in verse 8, he says, the eye's not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Man speaks, we look, we listen. We want some way to break the wearisomeness of monotony and the repetitions of life. We want to escape the, the shortness of it and the mistiness of it. But the reality is you can't. There will always be meals to cook, clothes to wash, and bills to pay. Don't expect to break free from the ordinariness of life or find some deeper meaning with a new job or a new house or new relationship or new freedom. It cannot be found no matter how hard we try, how hard we pretend, or how much we watch Disney. You are not going to break the repetitions that are embedded in creation, that are a part of a fallen realm, and that really characterize your ordinary life. That's what he's saying. It's like John Cougar Mellencamp sings, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. There's a truth in that statement. But you want to know what our problem is? We worship the thrill. And then we're utterly disappointed when the thrill is gone. Because the thrill has caused us to set up some expectation. Again, the world's not designed to give us. And then we're disappointed. And we try to break free from the rut and the routine. And so then what happens is you go through there in verse 8, you get to verse 9 after he, after he tells you this is what the, the, the nature of things teaches us. And then in verse 9, he 
lays before us the reality of life. That his observations that his observations have collected. Here's the reality of life. Verse 9 and 10. There's nothing new under the sun. Look at that. Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing in which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. And so what he's getting at there is, is that, in other words, is there something that we're going to discover that's going to be new? And we're going to say, well, there it is. That's going to break the whole mist-like nature of life. That's going to, that, there it is. That's going to cure my discontent. There's nothing new. Nobody's going to create that, right? They could freeze your body, prevent you from actually going into death, and they could wake you up a hundred years from now. You're still going to die. Watch Captain America. Verse 9 reminds us, watch out for the false prophets of the new who offer us something that can save us from the old routines and ruts of life. No, verse 9 reminds us that Eve knew, that, that even now, that, that, that the new is old. The new is old. Look at verse 10. That's what he says. See, this is new? Yeah, it's been already in the ages before us. Again, he's not saying new things don't exist like MacBooks, iPhones, virtual reality, all the endless technologies, AI, and all that that's now giving us both the good and the bad, the perils and the promises of technology. All of these things are, are, are filled with all sorts of promises, but it doesn't matter. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how much we scroll or send or snap or click. Technology doesn't change the reality under the sun. People can travel into space. We can establish colonies on Mars. And guess what? The problems there are the problems here. Because we're still under the same curse of sin. The point is that there is nothing new we can discover to break the cycle or to ultimately satisfy our longing, fallen, sinful hearts. C.S. Lewis picked up on this. I love C.S. Lewis. Screw tape letters. Book where he wrote, and he's and there's a there's a junior kind of there's a junior demon that's being trained by a by a general demon, and the the general demon is trying to teach this this new this new demon how he can deceive human beings and take them to hell. And listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. This is Screwtape talking, and he says, "You know, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart." The pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. In other words, just keep distracting them with novelty. Keep them afraid of the same old thing. Right? More reels and more reels and more reels. And we just keep watching them over and over and over again. Follow what's going on here? There's nothing new under the sun. And many of the things that are offered to us are distracting us up from reality. Second thing. There's nothing new under the sun, but notice what verse 11 says. What it's been is what will always be. That is the condition of the world, the cycles of the world, the repetitions of the world, verse 9. 
what has been done is what will be done. It's going to do the same thing over and over again as long as we're in a fallen realm. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which is said, see, this is new. It has already been done. It's been already in the ages before us. And then verse 11, here it is, his final statement. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Wow. The end of the poem seals the argument. There is no gain or profit to our work and labor under the sun because man is born, he lives, he dies. And verse 11 says, there will be no remembrance of the former things. Not only will we be forgotten, our accomplishments will be forgotten and every generation will continuously forget what the truth that Solomon has given. Every generation will forget there is no profit that you're going to gain from this world that's going to give you salvation and true meaning in life. So the question that we have to ask at the end of this sermon, the question that we should ask as we come to the end of verse 11 is, how on earth do we respond to this? Right? Man, I hope you're not feeling too depressed. But it's okay to have some feelings of despondency because this is God's word. So how do we respond? Well, I'll give you three things for response. You ready? Number one, here's how you respond. We must accept our limits under the sign. That's why he's drilling this down on us. Accept your limits. His thesis forces you to grapple with life and death and reality. This is the way it really is. One author says this, only preparing to die will teach us how to live. Only preparing to die will teach us to live. Do you know really the reason he keeps repeating this? And you can read all the way to the end of the book. You want to know why he keeps repeating this? Because he wants you and I to stop pretending that we can achieve something that we're not going to achieve in this life under the sun. Stop pretending. We need to stop pretending. You hear people, you know, I'm going to beat cancer. You might, but you won't beat death. You might go in remission. You might be free, but you're not going to beat death. We can stop aging. You can cover up wrinkles, right? I can put coffee greens on my head and pretend I've got like a beautiful full hair, set of hair. But you know what? The reality is, it's going. You can't stop aging. Go to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Stop pretending that we can secure some kind of lasting future in this world under the sun. Stop imagining that if you change jobs, started new relationships, had more stuff, that it would make your life better. Jesus said that life does not consist of the abundance of things. Stop living like your name will not one day be listed in the obituary. The preacher wants you and I to accept this because you know what that does? Death makes you think about living, doesn't it? How am I living my life? My life may end at the end of this week. How is that going to affect the way I live? There's only one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Death has a real effect. The reality of our our vapor-like existence has an effect on the way that we live and the way we prepare for the end. Are you going to live your life for Jesus Christ? 
Are you going to act upon what you're hearing? Are you just going to leave and go home and keep binge-watching favorite shows and keep scrolling through social media and ignoring the reality? And the reality is your life is breath and so is mine. And therefore, we need to live life in light of God. That brings us to the second point. Second thing to respond, we must recognize the sovereignty of God. We must recognize the sovereignty of God and the splendor of God. Go to verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business. It is a frustrating business. he's, He's saying that there's even the frustrations in life that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's all under the sovereignty of God. Go to chapter 2 and verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from what? What does the text say? Read it. From the hand of who? Of God. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This is vanity and a striving after wind. Do you see? He is the one who has made life. He's the one that has set the limits and made us in an ordinary existence. And this God is sovereign over the world. And the world still is still under His authority. And His splendor, which we read about in Psalm 145 in the beginning, can still be found from sunsets to seashores. From our first parents, we've inherited this notion that there is some happiness apart from God. I'm here to tell you, there's not. Stop worshiping the thrills or reliving the past to your children or relentlessly building more sandcastles. Look up beyond the sun and you will see the God who directs the waters, commands the winds, and governs the cosmos and knows who you are. And you know what that will do to you? It'll lead you to the third way to respond. Not only must we live life to recognize the sovereignty and splendor of God, but before I look at that that last thing, do you know what discovering the sovereignty and splendor of God will do? It'll make you realize that life is not gain, it is a gift. Did you hear that? Life is not gain, it is a gift from a sovereign and splendid God. We grapple with the futility of knowing, as Jesus said, life is more than earthly cares and that he knows us and wants us to know him. And that leads to true contentment under the sun. And it reminds us lastly that we must trust Jesus and hope and the hope of the gospel. You know where this ends us with? Jesus. We need Jesus. Not only when we understand God's sovereignty and His splendor and that life is not a gain, but it is a gift. That leads us to the true one that we need, and that's Jesus, whom we must trust. Do you know that Jesus asked the same question Solomon asked? What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? In the end, there's nothing to profit if we gain the whole world. He brings Solomon's question all the way to himself. The gospel reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun except Jesus. Except Jesus. He is the new and living way, Hebrews tells us. And in Christ we can have life and salvation. By trusting Jesus, we are given new life because He gave us, 
He came to give us new life. To give us new breath filled with the hope of salvation under the sun. And He went to the cross. And He gave up His own breath on that cross. And He was put into the grave breathless. And He rose again from the dead with resurrection life. And He grants that same life to any sinner who will come repenting of sin and trusting in Him for true hope and redemption. And if you trust Jesus, He will transform your mist-like life so that to live is Christ and to die is gain because He's making all things new. And in Jesus, life will one day unfold into a new heaven and a new earth. Life will not be breath, but life will be eternal because we'll be with him. And so if you trust Jesus today, or you have already trusted Jesus, then you understand that he is the one that we need the most. And you and I then can sing with Isaac Watts, which we'll sing in just a moment. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guard while life shall last, and our eternal home. Will you come to Jesus today and trust in him? And church, will you rest in him with your mist-like life? Let's stand as we prepare to sing. As we stand and bow our heads, I want you to think today, what are you living for? What are you living for? Are you trying to find in this life and this world something that only Christ can provide? Maybe as a Christian, you need to say, Lord, help me to to really, truly just rest in your sovereignty and help me to accept my limits and to live life, this short life I have, to continue to live for Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you're not saved and you can come and say, I realize I need to give my life to Christ so that not only will he save me, but he'll save me eternally. Father, we pray that you bless your word now as we respond to it and pray, God, that you do our work, your work in our midst as we think about our breath-like existence and may it bring us to the reality that life is not gain, it is a gift from you and that our greatest need is Jesus. Help us to accept our limits and then live our life for the one who has died and has risen again until that day we're in the new kingdom that is yet to come. In Jesus' name.